Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the show. I am Tommy, I am the host, and I'm feeling kind of shocked again. I feel shocked! I still love pumpkins, Cotton. The reaction to the events of January 6th does surprise me a bit. Or maybe it's more the traction, not the reaction. I'm not surprised at all that Democrat politicians and their media allies are trying to whip the events of January 6th into a 9-11 type crisis. I am surprised at how much traction that narrative seems to have gotten. Obviously, it is impossible to know what the collective conscious is really thinking, but in whatever limited perspective of it that I might have, I'm seeing a lot of pretty wild exaggerations. I mean, even beyond the overly dramatic approach that we already have for all things Trump, the level of theatrics over the events of January 6th has been really special, and I think it raises some pretty interesting questions. Also, the president has been banned from social media. I wasn't a follower, so really no difference for me personally. However, the legality of banning POTUS is pretty interesting, so I want to talk about the case law and concepts involved with that. That's right, two big fun segments on the show today. One philosophical, one technical. Let's head over to the lounge for episode two of the 2021 podcast series. First off, let's try to get on the same page here. What is a reasonable reaction to the events of January 6th? And that's largely a matter of opinion, but I think it's possible to put a logical framework around it. And let's be clear, this is not an excuse or a justification for any behavior by any individual or group. This is a logic exercise to measure consistency. How do the events of January 6th rank by our current standards? And please recall that our current standards for protests with elements of riot include nightly attacks on public buildings in Portland. For over a year, protesters have been throwing homemade explosives and trying to set fire to courthouses, police precincts in Oregon. We've seen this very same city of Washington, D.C., set ablaze during this summer protest. We've seen Kenosha, Wisconsin burn. We've seen Philadelphia burn. In Seattle, entire city blocks were under siege for weeks. Literally, an area of Seattle was overtaken by extremists who established what they called an autonomous zone. Then on January 6th, protesters gathered in D.C., and as I'm sure you're aware, some of them stormed the Capitol building. It was not peaceful, that's for sure, but it also wasn't even close to the scale of violence and destruction that we've already seen in 2020. So when analyzing what a reasonable response might look like, you always have to consider where is the bar already set? Was there widespread reporting about domestic terrorism when entire city blocks of Seattle were seized for weeks by radicals? Was there any discussion of putting those arrested for violent protest in Portland on a no-fly list? No, there really wasn't. Uh, even though the events in Portland and Seattle went on for much longer and were far more destructive and violent. So why am I now being told that January 6th is a new Pearl Harbor? I mean, it's totally fair 
If anyone wants to compare or contrast the magnitude of a protest in Portland or Seattle versus the magnitude of storming the Capitol. But it's totally absurd to compare what actually happened on January 6th to Pearl Harbor or 9-11. Look, I get it. The joint session at the Capitol was there to count the electoral votes. Interrupting the peaceful transfer of power? That sounds like a really super serious thing. But we have some current standards on interrupting the transfer too, don't we? Yes, we do. Uh, My show is not some gaslighting narrative center. It's all about intellectual honesty here. It was fine to reject the results of the 2016 election. It was fine to try to block the transition. In fact, it was openly encouraged. Folks were heaving up anything they could find to try to prevent Trump from being inaugurated after he was duly elected. Sedition was a fucking industry after Trump won. And attempting to interrupt the transfer of power is obviously not unprecedented. Of course, the Democrats that were involved in that, they never considered their actions as an assault on democracy. They thought they were a righteous resistance preventing an unjust election result. And now we have MAGA world, and they don't consider their actions an assault on democracy either. They also think that they're a righteous resistance preventing an unjust election result. The pathology is the exact same. You'd never know it by the reaction, though. And perhaps some of that is because the tools and the techniques being used are so different. The pussyhat protesters, they didn't break into the Capitol. Their form of sedition was to use faithless electors or the 25th Amendment or anything else they could come up with to undermine a duly held election. Ultimately, the resistance settled on that fucking stupid Russia collusion conspiracy theory, and they really did use it to try to overturn an election. And it brings up an interesting question. Which is more vile? Corrupt elements of the Department of Justice, the FBI, and a special counsel collaborating with dishonest media corporations to attempt a coup? Or the MAGA carnival that took over the Capitol for a few hours? Now, there's no wrong answer here. It's just perception. Thankfully, January 6th wasn't much of an insurrection. Insurrection generally implies an armed rebellion that seizes power. This is more like a wacky church group outing to the state fair. But some of them went full nutter and stormed the Capitol building. It was not exactly a Taliban-like insurgency. It was more like a bunch of Viking hats and selfie sticks. There was a body count, though. There was violence. Obviously, that is not the way to redress grievances. That's no way to go, Franco. Franco un-American. What those idiots did should be condemned. And I hereby condemn it. But I'm not going to play stooge when Team Good circles back to piss on my leg about how this was Pearl Harbor. I'm going to analyze how this really ranks by our current standards. As far as the current standard for protest with elements of riot, cosplay at the Capitol does not stand out at all. As far as I know, they didn't even burn anything. I mean, compared to some of the wild destruction we've seen throughout the summer, January 6th wasn't even a blip. Objectively, even with the body count, the Capitol events were mild compared to the levels of destruction we've seen. Objectively, January 6th was not an insurgency. Study the events in the Middle East if you want to see what a real violent insurgency looks like. As far as the current standard for sedition goes, Occupying the capital for a few hours was never a serious threat to democracy. 
You could easily argue that the Russia collusion hoax got a lot closer to overturning an election than anything the cosplay carnival could ever do. Look at the standard that was set by the Obama administration for interrupting the peaceful transition of power. We had senior leaders at the DOJ and FBI being fired for cause by the dozens. The FISA court had to order a complete audit of warrants because of how much fraud was packed into the Carter Page applications. The Mueller special counsel already has an attorney convicted for forging an email while trying to keep their phony narrative going so they could get the Don and Pete. I mean, ultimately, it is completely subjective. It's totally fair if people consider the violence of January 6th to be the more serious offense. Collusion thing was a bloodless coup. But it's also fair if folks think that the sedition orchestrated by senior leaders at the DOJ and FBI is way more serious than a peasant uprising over at the Capitol. Either way, it would be neat if more people could just be intellectually honest about the standards that our society has set. But I get that it's probably way more fun to do all that cartoonish, team-good, fighting-for-justice stuff. Anyway, storming the Capitol was obviously stupid and wrong. Those who did it should be arrested and prosecuted. But I'm not really losing much sleep over it. We live in a country where D-Government X attempted a coup in broad daylight. They tried to overturn an election, and the media and half the country cheered it on. Hey, speaking of that... I'm going to need to do a segment on a future show about the Durham Special Counsel. That has flown almost completely under the radar. But to close out the events of January 6th, seems like the reaction is just more of that cartoonish team good stuff that's polluted the discourse for four years now. I am fascinated and occasionally shocked by watching that. Nobody really wants to have a sober look at what's going on. It seems to be just way more fun to mindlessly yell orange man bad. I mean, I guess it was kind of predictable that all of the loons who've been stomping around screaming about fascist Nazis all of this time, they were going to latch on to the events of January 6th. They finally got something that, if you squint hard enough, might look like a fascist movement. So cosplay at the Capitol gets hyped into a new 9-11, and that justifies all the stupid shit that's been pumped out for the last four years. It really is as close as Team Good is ever going to get to a see, told you so moment. So we're definitely going to hear about this for a few minutes. What will be interesting to see is if it's just a victory lap kind of moment, or if we're about to get dragged into a Patriot Act Part 2 based on the whole domestic terror shtick. I think it's fairly easy to understand why politicians will try and whip up a frenzy. Crisis events allow the government to implement control measures that they could never get away with at any other time. And it sure seems like the government enjoys having power. Go figure, right? Regardless of party, this one's bipartisan. Government enjoys power and is often seeking ways to increase how much of it they have. Rahm Emanuel probably said it best. We all know Rahm, right? Former Obama chief of staff, former mayor of Chicago. High-level Democrat brass. Well, Rahm famously said, quote, you never want a serious crisis to go to waste. I mean, it's an opportunity to do things that you think you could not do before, end quote. Well, you can bet your sweet ass they're not going to let this go to waste. The DNC media tech triangle works together like an ideological apparatus, and they're going to try and use January 6th to kick open a great big Underton window. If you've listened to the last couple of episodes, I use the term Underton for convenience. 
and political science Joseph Overton is credited with creating the concept that at any given time, there's a range of policies that are acceptable to the majority. The range is referred to as the Overton window. However, here in modern practice, what commonly happens is greedy corporations, corrupt politicians, and fraud media hijack the discourse, and they flood the zone with completely dishonest narratives. And as a result, the public opinion gets polluted with disinformation, and that allows terrible public policies to sail through because they're viewed as popular, fashionable. So I started calling that phenomenon the Underton window. And the Underton is how idiocracy really does happen. And DNC Media Tech Triangle is going to full throttle this. If they can convince enough rubes that the world is full of right-wing domestic terrorists all plotting to topple democracy, their power to censor and to eliminate competing platforms, that's going to increase exponentially. (laughs) The level of gross stupidity that we're all sentenced to live with is about to get so much worse. January 6th is the new 9-11. Brondo has what plants crave. Uh, Back half of today's show, I want to look at the Trump social media ban. Not turning this into a law podcast, but we can break some cases and have some fun. First off, I don't think it's controversial to note that Trump tweets very irresponsible things. Constantly. He is an obnoxious game show host that posts steaming piles of bullshit. However, from a legal perspective, it's very cut and dry. He did not incite anything. If you were not already aware, there's a 1982 Supreme Court decision, the NAACP versus Claiborne, and that decision makes clear that incitement is a statement that specifically directs an action. Trump did not direct anyone to storm the Capitol. Accordingly, there is no incitement, and that's true and accurate. It's the exact same way that the NAACP could not be found guilty of incitement. Impeachment on the other hand, is a political process. Congress can draft an impeachment whenever they want for whatever they want. They don't have to satisfy a legal standard for incitement. They don't have to satisfy a legal standard for anything. But people should understand that anyone who accuses Trump of incitement is politicking. There's no basis in law for the accusation. But like I was saying in the last segment, there are a lot of people out there who spent years proclaiming that Trump was going to be the end of days So they're going to accuse him of incitement regardless of what the Supreme Court has said on that matter. With regard to the social media platforms, the case law is nowhere near as clear. Twitter claims that Trump was suspended due to the risk of inciting violence. And I can go pretty hard at Twitter for their oligarch authoritarian habits, but always endeavor to be intellectually honest, Twitter did not accuse Trump of incitement. Their ban was based on the potential that he could in the future. The logic that Twitter used to support the ban was in their press release, quote, President Trump tweeted that he will not be attending the inauguration. That serves as encouragement to those potentially considering violent acts that the inauguration would be a safe target as he will not be attending, end quote. Again, not controversial to acknowledge that Trump tweets very irresponsible things. For this segment, I want to look at the legality of what Twitter did. 
many of you fine listeners may already know that there's been quite a bit of litigation regarding Trump and Twitter. The most notable case might be when Trump was prohibited from blocking people on Twitter. The underlying case there was Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia University versus Trump. It's from the Second Circuit. We just call it Knight First for short. The posture in that case was that the president's use of his at real Donald Trump account was a primary vehicle for his official communications. The court held that Trump used his personal Twitter to make official statements on a wide variety of subjects. The public, in turn, was able to respond to and engage with the president regarding those subjects. The night first court concluded that interactive dialogue created a public forum. And once a public forum has been created, First Amendment rights are applicable. There's a whole subsection of law dedicated to forum analysis. It can go on for hours just on the case law regarding what determines that a public forum has been created. There are three types of fora. What a great word, forum. It's plural for forum. One forum, multiple fora. Anyway, the three types of fora are the traditional public forum, the public forum created by government designation, and the non-public forum. Twitter is a private company, so we're talking about a non-public forum. And that probably sounds counterintuitive, but a non-public forum may in fact be a public forum. There are a couple of tests that a private space has to clear to be considered a public forum. It has to be open access and it has to have viewpoint neutrality. Those are important distinctions. For example, a TV station cannot be a public forum because it's not open access. You can't open an account today and be on NBC tomorrow. Also, TV stations program their own content. Obviously, Fox News is not viewpoint neutral. However, Twitter is open access. Anyone over 13 can create an account. No barrier to entry. Hence, it can be a public forum. Next, Twitter is based on the user-provided content. They're not a publisher creating their own content, and that can make them viewpoint neutral. In Night First, the court found that when Trump uses his real Don account, the posts are official statements and the public in turn is able to respond and engage with those statements. That equals public forum. And since the court ruled a public forum was created, Trump was thereby prohibited from blocking anyone, as that would infringe on the blocked person's First Amendment rights to participate in the public forum. Did you get all that? If a public official makes official statements in an interactive environment, even if it's on privately owned website, a public forum is created and First Amendment protections apply. Obviously, there's some fairly subjective components in that analysis. Uh, as you'd expect, not all of the judges agreed. There is a dissent in Knights First. The judge that viewed it differently basically said the Twitter account was the president's personal account, and therefore nothing he posted was an official statement, and blocking people on Twitter was not an action of the state. And that's another complex sub-area of law, the state action doctrine. You can go deep down the rabbit hole on that. It has application to both the First and Fourteenth Amendments. But in short, the dissent said that Trump tweets and blocks are just personal statements and not state actions. Therefore, Twitter cannot be a public forum and there are no First Amendment concerns. However, after discussion on how Trump was using Twitter, 
a majority of the panel determined that yes, it was a state action. So when we think about Trump being banned by Twitter, the appropriate way to frame the question is, if the night first majority was correct, that a public forum had been established, can Twitter unilaterally decide to close that forum? If you recall our discussion on the three fora, non-public forums are one of them. I'm sure big law fans are already formulating their searches for private entity obligations when they create a public forum. There certainly are cases and secondary sources regarding physical spaces that are privately owned but became public forums. But this isn't a physical space. It's the internet. What can we learn about that distinction? The next case we should look at is probably Packingham versus North Carolina. We'll call that Packingham. And Packingham is a bit of a doozy. It's really not unusual for First Amendment cases to test your stomach, so I don't want to be needlessly dramatic. But stands to reason when you're talking about freedom of speech case law, you're going to encounter some unsavory speech. The foundation for Packingham is North Carolina enacted a law that made it a felony for any registered sex offender to access a commercial social networking site that permits minor children to become members. Oh no, it's the pedo bear. Well, Packingham sued and won. North Carolina's law was found to be unconstitutional. The basis for the ruling was that a fundamental principle of the First Amendment is that all persons have access to places where they can speak and listen and today... One of the most important places to exchange views is the internet. Packingham's case went all the way to the Supreme Court. And yes, I'm trying to resist the urge to start calling it Pac-Man and do a bunch of waka 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 drops and Atari sound effects. This is a serious law discussion, damn it. In Packingham, Justice Kennedy discussed the relationship between Twitter and the First Amendment. Justice Kay said, quote, while in the past, there may have been difficulty in identifying the most important places in a spatial sense for the exchange of views, today the answer is clear. It is cyberspace, the vast democratic forums of the internet in general and social media in particular. On Twitter, users can petition their elected representative and otherwise engage them in a direct manner. In short, social media users employ these websites to engage in a wide array of protected First Amendment activity on topics as diverse as human thought. End quote. SCOTUS seems somewhat clear in their belief that cyberspace is the most important place currently for the exchange of ideas. So as we research our question on whether or not Twitter can shut down a public forum, we should be aware of what SCOTUS has told us about the internet and social media in particular. Like I wasn't going to do that. Anyway, as we were just discussing, the proper question with regard to Twitter banning Trump is, if the night first ruling is correct in establishing a public forum, can Twitter unilaterally close that forum? And we ask that question against the backdrop of SCOTUS having already told us it's unconstitutional to wipe away access for entire classes of people. But so far, with regards to banning an individual... It's a question unique to the public official. Me and the rest of the general users have no claim individually if social media bans us. Twitter can nuke our accounts with impunity. 
The law on that is pretty clear. There are numerous cases, but I'm going to feature Wilson versus Twitter, a case out of the Fourth Circuit, mostly because Wilson is just a great character for a podcast. Plaintiff Robert Eugene Wilson filed a complaint because Twitter banned his account based on what Wilson referred to as his freedom of speech and or heterosexual expression. Wilson requested $250 million in damages. Pay the homophobe? Probably not, Gene. Probably not. But what makes this case most enlightening is that our boy Wilson was pro se. He was acting as his own attorney. As you might have guessed from his blithering idiot hetero expression complaint, he's not a very sharp legal mind. But as the bench will sometimes do, they used this village idiot to address a larger question. Essentially, what happens is the court steps in to make the arguments for him. Wilson was too ignorant to articulate himself, so the court fixes all his mistakes just so they can then rule on the matter. And here's what they said. Quote, Even if Wilson were to argue that Twitter is subject to the First Amendment under the state action doctrine, such an argument would fail. While Twitter no doubt provides a valuable public forum, one in which millions of users, including the President of the United States, participate in wide-ranging public discourse, this alone is insufficient to establish that Twitter is a state actor, end quote. Here in the Ninth Circuit, we have a similar ruling as well. Apparently, there's something called Prager University, and they had some videos banned from YouTube, so they sued Google under the First Amendment flag, and the Ninth, of course, sent them packing, quote, that private social media companies now host platforms which imitate the functions of public forums in many respects more effectively than the traditional public forums of government-owned sidewalks, streets, and public parks does not mean that entities are state actors for the purposes of the First Amendment, end quote. The Supreme Court has spoken on this as well. It's a case from 2019, Halleck, and it confirms the circuit opinions, quote, Merely hosting speech by others is not a traditional exclusive public function and does not alone transform private entities into state actors subject to First Amendment constraints, end quote. So SCOTUS again leaving the door slightly ajar, it does not alone transform a private entity into a state actor. However, there may be a confluence of events, a fact pattern, that does transform the private entity into a state actor. And to close out, I guess I should note that throughout history, when trends change, SCOTUS occasionally reassesses their public forum state actor precedents. For example, in the 70s, the Supreme Court considered First Amendment claims in Hudgens after a change in behavior where private shopping malls became the most popular places for speech rather than municipally owned streets, sidewalks, and parks. Ultimately, the malls were not found to be state actors, But it's certainly possible that, in the future, the social media companies might be. We're all aware of the current configuration of the Supreme Court, and we have Justice Kennedy alluding to how different the internet, and specifically social media, is. Alright, that's enough for today. Stay healthy, homies.